been a long journey. We've been six weeks now in this new series called Heartstrings. We're about to come to an end. We have one more study next week, which is a very interesting last passage as we wrap this up about being perfect. So we're going to talk about perfection next week. If you know anybody that's imperfect, invite them to come. After the message, they will leave perfect. All spouses will be perfect from that point on. But today we're going to wrap it up in this sort of attitude adjustment concept in the six strings that we've been talking about. So far we've talked about uh, anger and lust and hard-heartedness and and, uh, resentfulness and retaliation. We've talked about a number of things. And today our sixth and final attitude that needs to be fine-tuned is the attitude of hatred. The attitude of hatred. Now most of you more than likely are wondering, this is not a study that I need. Well, hold on, hang on. By the time we define the word hatred, it might include you. But before we start, I want to sort of tell you a funny story that I ran across this week while I was uh, doing some research. It's a story about a pastor who was preaching his Sunday sermon, and in his message, the message entitled, Forgive Your Enemies, toward the end of the service, he asked his congregation, how many of you have forgiven their enemies? About half held up their hands, and then he repeated the question a second time, and because it was past lunchtime, I like this guy, it was past lunchtime, When he asked it the second time, everybody wanting to end the service quickly, 80% raised their hands this time. Well, he decided to repeat a third time this question. He said, all who have forgiven their enemies, please raise their hand. Everyone in the auditorium raised their hand except for one small elderly lady seated about in the middle of the auditorium. He then turned and said to the lady, Mrs. Jones, are you not willing to forgive your enemies? To which she replied, smilingly and very sweetly, I don't have any enemies. Mrs. Jones, that is very unusual. If you don't mind me asking, how old are you? It's always a dangerous question when you ask a lady that. She said, Pastor, I don't mind. I am 93 years young, she responded. Oh, Mrs. Jones, what a blessing and a lesson to us all who are here today. Would you please come down in front of this congregation and tell us all how a person can live 93 years and not have an enemy in the world? Well, the little sweet elderly lady trotted down the aisle. It was a lengthy aisle. It took her some time to get there. She then grabbed the microphone, faced the congregation, and confidently said, I have outlived all the old bags. (laughs) That's one way not to have any enemies. Just outlive all of them. And then you can, like this sweet Mrs. Jones, have no enemies. We have a lady who works in the office. I'm not going to tell you her name, but she is a very sweet lady. And I asked her one time, I said, you are so sweet. I bet you even have some good things to say about the devil. And she just smiles. Oh, pastor, you're just kidding me, aren't you? It's Miss Betty. Anybody know Miss Betty? If you come in the office, she is one of those people. I want to imagine that she probably would say I have no enemies, but she's not 93 years old yet. But anyway, I just kind of had to throw that in there, Miss Betty. I know you're out there, but anyway. You know, this topic that we're going to be talking about this morning was a topic of much discussion and much debate in the day of Jesus. And the reason why it was a topic of much discussion and much debate is because there was a discussion and debate in regard to basically 
this whole concept of loving your enemies, especially loving your neighbor. And so as a result of that conflict and that controversy that was constantly brewing in the time of Jesus, there were several who came to Jesus and asked him about their neighbors and about their enemies. And there are various and numerous times in which Jesus addresses this all-important subject. And it's a relevant subject for us today because I'm convinced that all of us have a problem loving those who are our enemies. Or even in our culture and our setting today, all of us would probably have to admit, as we look at it in just a little bit, as we think about the definition, we all more than likely have those very difficult people in our lives that tweak us or push us to the maximum of the emotional and mental capabilities, and they irritate, they agitate, and they anger us. And when we see them, we get all uptight, and we just start stressing out, and and we just don't know how to relate to them. Even in our cultural setting today, we have, I think, a big debate and a big discussion about this whole concept of loving our enemies. What exactly does that mean? And the reason today we have this problem is because we have three main elements that are working against us. First of us, we live in a culture that doesn't love its enemies. I mean, I love football season, and this is football season. During football season, it's like us, it's like we, the, the Christian team, going out on the ball field to play against our opponent, the world, and and the world has a different set of rules than we do. They are not told to love their enemies. And so when we're engaging the culture and the world that we live in, because they have a different set of rules, it's, it's almost like they have an advantage over us that we don't have. And that conflict stresses us out. And so we, we, we struggle with this whole concept as a believer to love our enemies. It's because of the culture that we live in today. But secondly, I think it's also because we have an enemy, and his name is Satan. And Satan loves to put people into our lives that are hard and difficult to deal with. Everyone has one. Anyone not have one today? Uh, And if I were to ask you to raise your hand, you don't have one. I'm not going to do that. More than likely, you're that person. Think about it. But the enemy loves to put people and put situations into our lives to bring stress and strain because he doesn't want us to live in harmony with with the body of Christ and in particular with the world in which we live in. And he's trying to, to, to tempt us with these relationships that take our faith to its maximum effort. You know what I'm talking about? But then there, there's this third and final agreement, and that's, that's our human nature, our, our depraved nature. I mean, I don't care how sweet you are, even if you're Miss Betty, we are all born with a carnal nature. And that carnal nature, when we hear this whole thing, love your enemies, we, we get stressed out because it goes against our natural tendencies. I mean, it just goes against the grain. There are people that we just flat out don't like, much less want to love. And and because we struggle with that Adamic or that that nature within us, it's not natural to do so. And so we we struggle and we stress and we discuss and we debate and, and we live 
you know, in this Christian environment, seeking to live out and fulfill the commands of Christ as a disciple of Jesus in, in a very cumbersome way. And we, we kind of try to feel our way through and, and find our way through. And, and we, we, we're left kind of with a lot of uncertainties and insecurities as to how we are then in our present world to love our enemies. How do we do that? And Jesus gives us some really cool insight into this passage about how we can conquer the attitude of hatred or dislike, or disdain. Let's take a look at the passage, and let's look at three things. As the rest of the, 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 the attitudes that we have dealt with, Jesus starts out the same way with each and every one of them. He says in verse 43, you have heard that it was said. Notice there's a corruption right off the bat in what they have heard. There have been a group of people who have sat down, they have, they have dissected the word, they have interpreted the word of God and the will of God for the people of God, they have proclaimed that upon the people, they have heard it, and now they are practicing it. And what they have heard proclaimed and what they are now practicing is in fact not exactly what God said. It is contradictory to what God said, and as a result of that, Jesus is saying to them and to those who have interpreted what God said, you have corrupted the word of God to suit your own tendencies. And isn't that natural for all of us? We read something that goes against our natural tendencies and that goes against the grain, and we, we sort of inductively sort of come to the conclusion, surely he doesn't mean that. He must mean this because this is easier than that, so I choose that rather than this. And that's what they've done. And Jesus is saying to them, you have corrupted. There is a corruption going on that is taking you away from the intentions that God had. He said, you have heard it was said. What have they heard? It was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, if you take a look at the text, he says that you've heard it said that love is only toward your neighbor. That means that love is to be inclusive. And the inclusivity of this love is that they are to love their neighbor. Now, it helps us understand what they defined as neighbor. They did not define a neighbor as someone who lived in close proximity with you or someone who shared the cubicle with you at work or who worked down the line or who lived next door to you in your neighborhood or who shopped in that same convenience store that you do. They defined the neighbor simply in this term, only those who are Israelites, my neighbor, if I was an Israelite, my neighbor is defined as only those like me, only Israelites. In other words, I am not supposed to love anyone else other than my fellow Israelites, my fellow Jews. They had defined it, this word neighbor, as an Israelite. And so it was very inclusive when it came to loving those of their same kind. But notice not only in the exclusivity of their love, but notice the inclusivity of their hatred. You are to hate your enemy. Now, how could they then qualify and define this whole concept of hating your enemy? Where did they get that? Well, in order for us to understand how, the, how this sort of thing works, let's sort of put ourselves back where they were back in their cultural setting and back in their day and time. How do they justify this whole thing, hate your enemies? Well, there were three positions they took stand on. First of all, they looked back as to the commandments that God gave to the Israelites when they took possession of the promised land. God told them, annihilate all those mites. 
you know, the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Ammonites, all those mites, okay? Just annihilate them. You can't cohabitate with them. You can't live with them. When you take possession of the land, we want, I want you to just wipe them out so that you can take possession of what I have promised you so that you don't ingrain your culture into their culture and you become like them and therefore have other gods other than me. And so that justified then their whole position of, well, we're supposed to hate our enemy. I mean, look what God told us to do when we occupied the promised land. The second concept that we see is in a passage found in Psalms 139, 21, 22. Let me read it to you. Listen to the psalmist. He said, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. They believed in this passage that hating their enemies was justifiable based upon this one passage that the psalmist writes. And so that was another justification for their position. But on top of that, there's a third and final justification for their position, and that is simply this. They believed that because they were in captivity from an invading force called the Roman Empire, it was justifiable then for them to hate their Roman enemies. And so therefore, they hated the Romans for occupying their land, and they detested them, they abhorred them, they hated them with a, with a passion that, that was, it was just, it was huge. And so those three reasons are what gave them position to justify what they had come about in interpreting, understanding the Word of God. But the fact is, the psalmist doesn't really say what they claimed that it saved, said because there are numerous passages, other, uh, other passages in Exodus and other passages in Proverbs, which says that you're supposed to love your enemy, that you're supposed to help your enemy, you're supposed to assist your enemy, you're supposed to be good to your enemy. And so how do you justify this, this whole concept of loving your enemy? Jesus is saying, particularly to them, to these people here, the problem is, here's the problem, you have justifiably come to this conclusion incorrectly. Here's the correct interpretation. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. I mean, these Israelites, these Jews, they hated the Romans, the Gentiles. They hated anyone and everyone that wasn't Jew, that wasn't an Israelite. So much so that the Romans thought that the Israelites hated all humanity. That's what they said. The Israelites hate everybody other than them, so they hate all humanity. They had come to that conclusion. And the problem was, is, is that they, they somehow misconstrued this whole concept that God had, is to love the sinner but hate the sin. And I think that's still the issue and the problem that we have today in our church, among believers today. I mean, it's hard for us sometimes to love the sinner and hate the sin. It's hard to separate and it's hard to distinguish the two. Take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 7 real quick. I want to look at a passage in Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. Luke 7, 36. There's a Pharisee who invited Jesus to dine with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table with the other people. Verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... I think that's interesting that, that Luke records that this woman was a sinner. She was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. 
And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. And now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, and this is the Pharisee who invited Christ, he said to himself, not to Christ, but he spoke to himself, who and what sort of woman is this who is touching him, meaning Jesus, for she is a sinner. No Pharisee in his right mind would have ever let a sinful woman ever touch him, much less any other woman, much less a sinful woman. And if Jesus were a prophet, he would know that this woman is a sinner. Why is he letting her? Why would he come to this conclusion as a, as a religious person, as a, a believer in Jehovah? Why would he? Because he had a misunderstanding of the concept of the grace of God. And Jesus, understanding what he says, he then turns to the Pharisee and he said, can I have permission to teach you a little story? He said, yeah. He said, let me ask you something. Who would love the most? Someone who is forgiven of 50 Denarii or someone who's forgiven of 500 denarii? He said, well, the one who's been forgiven the 500, of course, would love the most. And so then he says, well, then that is why this woman is doing what she's doing. She recognizes and realizes her sin. And because she believes her sin is so great, she loves the most. For he says in verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves... Who is this who even forgives sins? And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We cannot interpret God's judgment on sin with a commandment to hate those who are sinners. Yes, God condemns sin. But God loves sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Aren't you grateful that God first loved you before you loved him? I ask you, aren't you grateful? Aren't you glad that he saw you in your sin and loved you in spite of your sin to send a Savior to die on a cross, to take upon himself sins that he did not commit, sins that you committed upon that cross, dying in your place so that you might receive forgiveness and cleansing of sin and the promise of eternity? I mean, where would we be today if God didn't love the sinner and yet condemn the sin that we were in the midst of before we came to faith in Christ? We have a difficulty today, I think, in our self-righteousness, as they did then, to sort of look down on others because of their sin, elevating ourselves as a result of our own self-righteousness, not recognizing and realizing that the same forgiveness that he extended to them is the same forgiveness that he extended to us. There's a corruption then. I'm convinced there's even a corruption today. We are very, very quick to condemn others. Many times for the same sins that we committed before we came to faith in Christ. I mean, are we not all adulterers? 
are we not all liars? I mean, we've been talking about these, these attitudes that we're all guilty of. Aren't you glad that unmerited favor, a thing called grace, was extended to all of us in spite of our sin? And so he's trying to correct the current attitude of that day, which I'm convinced still prevails in the church too often today. There's a corruption here. Notice now there's a correction that Jesus makes. In the passage, in verse 44, he said, I say to you. In other words, I'm saying to you who are my disciples, I want you to receive my command. There's a different commandment that I'm going to give you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I'm about to switch it. I want you to love your enemies. To love your Does that sound hard to you? I don't know about you, but I don't like it much. Love my enemies? That's, that's next to impossible, isn't it? I mean, it goes against my human tendencies, my nature that is depraved. It goes against my culture. It goes against my, my hope of advancement, my hope of vindication. It's hard to love your enemies. But not only did he say love your enemies, he said pray for those who persecute you. He's saying, I'm going to give you a new commandment, and here's the new commandment. I want you to love your enemies, and not only love them, go a step further, I want you to pray for them, and that simply means to bless them. I want you to pray that God would bless them. So not only am I supposed to love my enemies, but I'm supposed to pray that God would bless them. Do you like that? Naturally, I don't think we do. But it's only in the supernatural can this become possible. He gives us a new command. Then he says, now, I'm going to give you this new command. And the reason I'm going to give you this new command is because I want you to reflect my character. My character. Notice he said, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. We are kingdom kids. And as a a son, as a daughter of the father through faith in the son, we have been adopted into his family. And now as kingdom kids, we have been given a different standard. We have been given a different lifestyle. And we are expected, anticipated then because of that relationship with the father to reflect his character. We have a new nature. We have a new heart. We have a new way of life. And yes, we play by a different set of rules. And the reason we do is because we're kingdom kids. We're sons and daughters of the father. And, and we don't negotiate and navigate the same way that the world does. We have a, a higher standard. And those of us who are Christ followers then are to reflect the character and the nature of our Father and of His Son and of the indwelling Spirit that resides within us. And we are then to transcend the culture, to transcend our depravity, and in the Spirit even go beyond what the world would deem necessary. And then he says we are to represent the compassion of God as well. He said, represent my compassion. Notice the next sentence. He said, for he makes his son to rise on, on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is what many call common grace. It's called common grace. It means that the sun rises on the just and the unjust and the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. In other words, all things come from the Father. The sun rises and sets because of the sovereign will of the Father. And as a result of the sun rising, the just and the unjust both benefit in the rising of the sun. And the just and the unjust both benefit from the rain that the crops need in order to be harvested. 
In other words, all blessings come from the Father. And all these blessings are by grace. Grace simply means unfair, unmerited favor from God. The reality is that the unjust don't deserve God's grace, and neither do the just. None of us in here, even though we're, we're saved, really deserve anything from him. Any more than if we were unsaved, in my personal opinion. I mean, if we got what we deserved, it wouldn't be what we have today as Christ's followers. Now, don't mistake this for saving grace. Common grace and saving grace is not the same thing. Saving grace is only given to those through faith in Jesus as their personal Savior who are then saved. That's saving grace. Only found through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That is, in fact, saving grace. Common grace and saving grace are two different things. Common grace simply means that they benefit from the blessings of God because all good things come from God. And what Jesus is trying to say here is, he's saying, I want you to, to show impartiality in common grace. Be gracious. Be kind. Be tenderhearted. Be merciful. Be gracious even to those who don't deserve it. And is it hard to be gracious and kind and and loving to those who don't deserve it? That guy who comes in and butts into the line and and cuts and and those people who drive like they... the road is theirs, and they've got to get ahead of the line, and they don't care who they, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's hard to be that. And he's saying to us, even like God, we are to display impartiality to how we treat people. So much so that Jesus gave an interesting parable. It's a parable that we all know about. It's a parable found in Luke chapter 10. Turn your Bibles, and, and let's take a look at that very quickly. Luke chapter 10. It's, it's, it's the story of what we all know to be the story of the good Samaritan, the good Samaritan. And this story is so familiar that we, we often skip, I think, sometimes the story because it's so familiar to us. But take a look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. I want you to notice there's a man here who's in trouble. He's on a journey. Uh, he's been beaten. He's been robbed. He's been taken advantage of, and he's been left to die in a ditch. What it, what's the relationship that each one of these people in this passage, what's that relationship they have with the man in the ditch? We have a lawyer here, a Pharisee. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, why did he make this response? Because he's self-righteous and he wants to justify himself. And he asked the question, the debate, the discussion of the day and time, just then who is my neighbor? (laughs) Who's my neighbor? Let's, Let's get into this discussion. Who's my neighbor? Who is he anyway? Well, he knew that Jesus knew that his neighbor was what? A fellow Israelite and no one else. Jesus knew that he knew that. And so he's trying to then skirt the issue and go into a debate. And to this man in his need, to this Pharisee, all this guy was in the ditch about to die was a position to discuss and debate. 
There are people in this world who see people in need, and all they want to do is discuss and debate the person there and do absolutely nothing about it. They exist, even in the church. So to the Pharisee, it was a position to debate. Notice now in verse 30, Jesus then replies, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. What group of people is that? These are the thieves who saw him as a person to exploit. Uh, to this man, all they wanted to do is to take him for all he had and leave him dead. They didn't care one ounce about him. They were just going to squeeze everything they could out of him and leave him to die. Notice now the religious who come along in the passage in verse 31. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. On the other side. And likewise, the Levi, another religious guy, a religious elite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. To this man who was there, this, this fellow Jew, this fellow Israelite who's dying in the pit, he was nothing more than a problem to avoid. They didn't really even love their neighbor because he was in need. But verse 33, along comes a Samaritan, and he was, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, went to him, and bound him up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. Notice to the Samaritan, it was a pleasure to serve. You saw the man in need? A Samaritan. You know, when Jesus told this, this, this thing here, this parable, they freaked out because they hated Samaritans. They were the lowest scum of the earth that they could possibly ever know. They would not much less talk to one. They would never help one. If he were on the side of the road dying, they would probably step over him and lay him to die on the road. They would have never taken the time to love him because he's not my neighbor. He's not an Israelite. He's not a fellow believer in Jehovah. He doesn't follow our regulations, our rituals, our traditions, and he is unclean. I am not going to help him. And now we have a Samaritan who I despise is helping one of my fellow Israelites of all the people. And on the top of all that, you've got two religious dudes who walk by who have nothing to do with the guy. Surely they would have helped, and now they didn't. And these, these people, when they heard this, these religious self-righteous were angered by what Jesus said. But notice the innkeeper in the story. Dude, the innkeeper, the man in need, was a person or a patron to receive something from because there are people in this world that only help in order to receive because he got paid for his job. And the next day he took the two denarii, denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus asked the question, which one of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the self-righteous Pharisee, the one who showed him mercy. Good choice in answers. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Why is he saying this parable? He's saying this parable to correct an action that's taking place, to correct the corruption and the distortion of, of, of the word and the will of God and the hearts and the lives of the people and how they're treating their fellow man. And he's saying, God, who is impartial, 
in, in how he deals with people, we, like him, if we are to receive this command, if we are to reflect his character, and if we are then to extend his mercy to everyone and his grace, this grace that is unmerited, we should not show partiality toward anyone. Because God doesn't. The sun shines on the just and the unjust, and the water falls on the just and the unjust alike. God's impartial. And because of that impartiality, he moves then to the, the third and final thing I want us to look at is the contrast in this argument. He gives now two contrasts, and I like to call this the arguments that Jesus gives for his position. These are, these are arguments that he props up to sort of justify or to, to help sort of solidify what he has just said. These are they're contrasts between two alternative and two very opposing different views. Notice what he says in verse 48. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? A tax collector was another scum of the, you know, he, he was the, the scum bucket. He was the, at the bottom of, of the social ladder. I mean, he was detested. He was hated. He was despised. He was a traitor. He worked for the invading Roman army and collected taxes for the, for the, the opposition army, the, the invading army. And not only that, but he was a thief. He collected more than he deserved. Anything he collected, he could keep. And so the only people that would do that would be the, the, the scum of the earth people. And here he's saying here that if you love those who love you back, don't even the, the scum of the earth do the same thing? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Do not, do not even the unbelievers, the degenerate, the people you won't even touch or have anything to do with, don't even the Gentiles do the same? What are the, the two contrasts here? The two contrasts in this passage, first of all, it's the carnal view. It's the world's view. The world's view is you love to get love back. And if you don't love me, then I don't love you. That's how the world deals with it. Sadly to say, that's how many Christians sometimes deal with it. I only love those who love me back. And, and the world that we live in is like that. And the world that we live in also, and the worldview that we have today is, I'm only going to greet those who greet me. I'm not going to extend compassion or kindness or, or, or generosity or, or anything to someone else unless I know they're going to extend it or I receive it first from them. It's an exchange program, you see, tit for tat. But the Christian view, the biblical view, is different. The biblical view loves unconditionally. Unconditionally. I don't know about you, but that kind of love is hard. For the kind of love that he describes here is the kind of love that we have toward God and the kind of love that God has toward us. It is an unconditional, unmerited, unfavored love that no matter what you do, they are going to love me. But I'm going to love you, and no matter what I do, you're going to love me. Well, that, wouldn't that be great? Now, if most marriages operated that way, how many marriages would be better? If most families operated that way, how much better would our families be? If most churches operated that way, how much better would our churches be? Unconditional love. That's the biblical view. That's the Christ view. But not only that, he said you're supposed to greet one another, even when you're not being greeted. You know, a little bit of distortion here, and let me help you understand 
what he's saying here is a greeting in Israel was simply a, a blessing. In other words, when you would greet someone, you go, peace. That's what you'd say. And it actually was a prayer. And it was a, it was a blessing. Did you know that we used to have the same thing in the United States when the little phrase goodbye? Do you know what goodbye means? Anybody know? God be with you. That's where it originated. When people would say back in the old days, goodbye, that simply meant God be with you. And what was happening here is that the people were greeting each other, but they had long forgotten what the meaning of the greeting was. They were simply just saying it out of custom, out of habit. And Jesus is trying to revert them back to the original intent in which they were giving the extension in that they were blessing even their enemies. And he said, my view is that you are to even bless those who persecute you, to bless them. To be kind to them, to be compassionate to them, doesn't mean you're a doormat, but it does mean that you're simply to bless them, to greet them properly. Ran across an interesting little illustration. I'm going to close with this. On a Sunday morning after church, the, the, the subject in Sunday school that morning was love your enemies. And the little five-year-old boy came home, and he and his dad began to talk about what he had heard. And so the boy looked at his dad, and he asked, Daddy, how does God love us? The father answered, son, God loves us with an unconditional love. The lad thought for a moment and then asked, daddy, what kind of love is unconditional love? After a few minutes of silence, his father answered, do you remember the two boys who used to live next door to us and the cute little puppy they got for Christmas? He said, yes, sir. He said, do you remember how they used to tease it, throw sticks at it, and even rocks at it? Yes, sir. Do you also remember how the puppy would always greet them with a wagging tail and would try to lick their faces? He said, yes, sir. He said, well, that puppy had an unconditional love for those two boys. They certainly didn't deserve his love for them because they were mean to him, but he loved them anyway. The father then made this point. God's love for us is also unconditional. Men threw rocks at his son, Jesus, and hit him with sticks. They even killed him, but Jesus loved them any way. Interesting in a passage in Luke 23, while Jesus was being suspended on a cross and dying for our sins, he said to the people that were inflicting the punishment on him, he said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What's our example? To love your enemies. Do you have a problem with hate? Do you have a problem with hate? You say, well, I don't hate anybody. Let me give you a definition of hate before you say you don't hate anybody. Here's the definition of hate. The definition of hate is simply this, to dislike someone intensely. Is there anybody in your life that you dislike intensely? The word hate also means to feel hostility to feel animosity, to feel aversion, to feel dislike, to feel anger toward someone. It means to detest, to disfavor, to disregard, or to unlovingly relate to someone. So with that definition, is there anyone that you know right now that fits that category? 
Chances are, I would say, that probably most of us, unlike Mrs. Jones, would probably have to honestly confess, you know, there's probably someone in my life right now that I'm having a hard time liking. Well, the Bible says that I'm supposed to love them, but I don't have to like them. You ever said that? I love you, but I don't like you. Believe it or not, as a pastor, I have 30 plus years, I've had people say that to me. I've had people say, you know, I want to I wanna hate you, but I can't help but like you. I don't know what that means. But chances are, in your relationships today, you're having some difficulty. And there are times, I think, when culture and the enemy and our society pushes those buttons in our relationships. Sometimes husbands and wives may find themselves in a situation where, you know what, I don't really like you very much today. Maybe sometimes we felt that way toward our parents. Maybe there's someone you work with that's unbearably difficult to deal with. Maybe someone has done something to hurt you and you've qualified them to be an enemy. Maybe they failed to do something that you expected and hoped and wished they did. And now you have this hostile, angry, disappointing distaste for them. And every time they're around you, you just, you just, you just can't seem to function the way you need to function. How would Jesus want you to deal with them in that relationship? What would a disciple of Christ do? He would receive the commandment that Jesus gave. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Wouldn't he? When's the last time you prayed for them? You know, it's really hard to really hate somebody you pray for and ask God to bless. We, as his disciples, represent the living Lord Jesus, and we have this innate natural change that takes place when we become born-again Christ followers, and we now have a new nature. We have a new father. We have a new citizenship. We are kingdom kids, and we must reflect the presence and the power and the victory of Jesus over the world's standards and over the carnality of our spirits and even over the temptations of the enemy. And we must extend the unconditional, unmerited favor upon those who we have deemed even to be our enemies because that that is what Christ would have us do as his disciples. So in essence, we have no choice. So what will you do in those difficult relationships in your life from now on? Christ can make a difference if we'll let him. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity we have this day to be challenged by this passage. And honestly, it really speaks to to relationships, not only relationships that we have that are difficult, but it speaks to our relationship with you. Because our relationship with you changes everything. It changes everything. 
And because of that relationship we have with you through your son Jesus, and because of the example that your son set, because of the example that you give in your nature and your characteristics, we must represent you, and we must represent you well. But quite frankly, there are times that we don't. We are human. We're carnal. Sometimes we're indifferent. Sometimes we let our emotions get the best of us. And there are times when even spouses and family members and church members and co-workers and friends and neighbors, our relationships can get so distorted and so disjointed that they don't represent and reflect you at all. And so, God, I pray that you would help us receive the command that you've given us. I know it's difficult to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. To represent your character flawlessly. And to extend the generosity that you've extended to us through grace. Father, forgive us where we have failed. Empower us as your people to make this a reality. So that you can be glorified through us. And your kingdom can be built up in us and through us. With your head bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment, would you reflect upon what God may be communicating to you today? What you're hearing and what you're sensing hopefully is from the Spirit, not from anyone else or anything else. There may be a sense of guilt and maybe some frustration and maybe some disappointment, and those things are okay as long as we deal with them promptly. How will you deal with those emotions and that feeling that you're feeling that there's someone and there's something right now that I need to lay on the altar and I need to deal with today? There's a relationship that's stressed and strained. There's a, an action that I've been doing that creates tension. and There's a feeling that I have around this individual that's just not quite right. There are things that I'm doing to antagonize and, and, and to, to agitate and to create dissension where are you and what is it that God's leading you to do today? As a Christ follower, we have a command to love. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a whole list of, of ways to love. Are you loving the way God loved you and Christ loved you unconditionally? Are you being tenderhearted and kind and compassionate and forgiving, and gentle, and loving in all your relationships. What needs to change? Well, so I just can't do it on my own. You're right. But all things are possible to those who believe. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And if Christ dwells in you, you have all that is necessary to rise above the world and your tendencies and your emotions and the animosity and all of that and reflect the likeness of Christ. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You don't have what is necessary to make this a reality in your life. And we invite you today to come to know personally this Jesus that we've been talking about who can transform everything in your life. 
For he came to settle that animosity you had between you and God by dying on the cross for your sin against the Father. And through faith in him, you can be set free. Do you need to come today? Publicly declaring your obedience to him and following him in baptism. We invite you to come. To unite with our church and moving your letter, maybe just come and kneel at the altar and pray. Whatever God places upon your heart, in a moment, after I pray, as we sing, whatever God says do, our pastors are here. We'd love to pray with you. Won't you come? y'all today. Good. Glad to see you all here this morning. We've come this morning to celebrate some more baptisms. Thank you all for being here. First this morning comes Brandon. Brandon came forward a few weeks ago and he says, I know Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, but I haven't really been following his leadership in my life. I haven't been doing the things that he's called me to do and haven't surrendered to his Lordship. He's come forward to say he wanted to rededicate his life to Christ and to start walking in the ways that Christ would have for him. Are there any friends or family or life group members of Brandon here that would like to stand this morning and honor this baptism? All right. Brandon, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes. Then I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. another baptism this morning. I have the privilege and honor of baptizing my son Tyler Mattingly. Just stand up if you would. Okay, stand up. He's a little wet. That's okay. <laughs> a few weeks ago, his uh, mom, Tanya, and I got an opportunity to uh, lead him to Christ, and God gave us that privilege and honor. If you are a friend or a family member or someone that you know, for, know him from uh, life group or anything like that, if you would stand in, in honor of the decision uh, at this time, we'd appreciate it. So Tyler, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Based on your profession of faith, I baptize you my brother now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism, grace to walk in newness of life. 